Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And because we're focusing on fandom today, Marcel, I want you to tell me about your first experiences of fandom in the sorting chat. What's the first thing you were a fan of? Oh boy. I had an extremely intense emotional attachment to a lot of television because I'm an only child of a single parent who is a geriatric millennial. So I I have a very intimate relationship with television. I was raised by TV. So My Little Pony, Shira, Mm. Princess of Power. um, (gasps) Oh, the OG. Yeah. Gem and the Holograms. Yes, um, yes. And and this is the one that I actually had like a lot of toys for. So I think this might have been the most intense of my fandoms. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Me and my friends spent so much time making believe that we were. I mean, we we insisted when I played with my friend Brooke, we insisted that we were both April O'Neil. <laughs> I love that. And then just imagined the turtles. But that's what childhood imagination is for. Exactly. It's so capacious, right? It has so much room for very confusing and complicated realities. Um, yeah. What, <laughs> what about you, Hannah? What uh, What are your earliest fandoms? I recently, after seeing early photos from the new Barbie movie, unlocked an early memory of what I think might be like the first fan event I attended as a child, which was a birthday party that a friend of mine had where it was a Barbie-themed birthday party, but there was an 
actor there playing Barbie who you could like interact with. <laughs> and I guess that's just like, like people have like Disney princesses at kids' birthday parties. Like that's a thing. But it wasn't, I don't think I've ever been to another birthday party with an actor at it <laughs> no. yet. It's not, not yet. too, it's not too late in our forties. We're all going to start having like mm-hmm. mimes at our birthdays. It's Absolutely. the new, it's the new thing. But I had totally forgotten. It was like we went to this this place, this building. Chuck E. Cheese. It wasn't Chuck E. Cheese. It was just a Barbie themed room. Whoa! And they had like they had like all the good Barbie <laughs> shit that you can't afford. You know, like the like the, the, like the house like that the has house. walls. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And then there was this woman who just was Barbie. Wow. Anyway, I had forgotten entirely, but that was clearly my first experience of a fan convention. That's incredible. My first, my first LARPer. When you were Barbie LARPing. <laughs> Barping, if you will. <laughs> Barbie action role play. Barping. Live action Barbie play? Larping. I think it's labping. <laughs> well, that's fun. I know that it is sort of a thing that like a lot of... A lot of people experience different kinds of gatekeeping and challenges and stuff like that in their various fandoms. And so I'm just I'm just wondering if you did you experience any gatekeeping when you were barping? Not when I was barping. That's such a gross word. We have to stop saying <laughs> Sorry, it. Sorry, I can't help it. It sounds like a cross between burping and barfing. It's awful. <laughs> but a much later sort of attempted fandom of mine was when I was in grade seven and eight. Our middle school was right around the corner from a comic book shop. And I was like, ready to become a comics nerd. I was ready. I was ready. And uh, and then every time I went and like bought the comics I was interested in, the men who worked there made fun of me. What the fuck? And I didn't come back to comics for like another maybe 15 years. My re-entry into comics was in Edmonton when we went to that feminist comic shop to watch the screening of that documentary about women in comics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I bought a copy of Bitch Planet and then my comics fandom truly began. But I distinctly remember this being like, yes, this is for me. And these like adult men being like, it is not, you should go. Imagine... Being an adult and behaving like that? Yeah. I mean, one, imagine being an adult and behaving like that, but also, like, imagine taking any kind of satisfaction out of making a child feel bad about anything, but also comics that you sell. Yeah. They're in your store. You have them. You stocked Supergirl. It's not my fault. Well, that's bullshit, and I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> but you know what isn't bullshit is the really exciting guests that we have today. So I think we should we should go meet them now. I think that's a great idea. Let's do it. Because this is a very special episode, we're doing something that we've never done before, but that I'm always trying to do. And that is... Skipping straight through revision (laughs) and going headfirst into the segment where we get to meet our special guests. So grab your books, people, because we're already late for transfiguration class. 
And we definitely don't want to be late because we have not one, but two visiting lecturers today. Two! A witch please first. We're thrilled. Lark Malachi Gray is a queer and trans artist. He is a full-time podcast maker and the creator of a gender-free tarot deck of monsters called Under the Bed Tarot. Jesse Blount is a queer black writer, baker, and podcast maker. When she's not yelling about pop culture, she can be found collecting bird facts, <laughs> urban foraging, writing fanfic, and treating her cat like a princess. Together, Lark and Jesse are hashtag Ruthless Productions, the creators of very queer, very nerdy podcasts. The Gaily Prophet is their Harry Potter podcast, Escape. <laughs> Did I say that? Escape from reality is about the Simon Snow series, and their newest creation is the Gay Pirate Podcast, which is obviously about our flag means death. They also host a Patreon-only Buffy podcast called We Are the Gayers. And yes, they know that is entirely too many projects for two people. Welcome! Welcome, Lark and Jesse. Thank you for having us. Hello, hello. Thank you for being here. This is very exciting. Four podcasts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just so that I understand, is it four podcasts that just the two of you do together? It's not like four podcasts with a with a team of a handful of other... You just... You two just... You make four podcasts together. In our defense, we are taking the summer off of The Gaily Prophet and Escape from Reality <laughs> to put out The Gay Pirate Podcast. <laughs> but normally... We do make three podcasts, like, all the time. Yes. Wild. I said, I don't think you emphasized gay enough when you said the it's name of your podcast there. Come Could on. you try again? <laughs> it's to make it legible, because otherwise you're just like, what happened? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fair. If you didn't capitalize it, people would be like, a Skype? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So, and I usually put it in there where I just like put parentheticals after where it's like spelled E-S-G-A-Y-P-E, but I forgot this time. So I put you in a predicament and I'm sorry. <laughs> Hannah loves predicaments in general. I love this predicament. I was born to be in this predicament, but we're not here to talk about any of your four podcasts. I mean, we can obviously, but we're not, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to talk about a fifth project. Listen, this is a real pot calling the kettle black situation, but like... Not for me, it's not. Y'all are <laughs> doing too much. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, we also both have ADHD and tend to agree <laughs> to things or like start ideas as soon as they happen because we're very excited about them. And then we're like locked in because we're accountable to other people. <laughs> so it creates its own joy i don't know you'd think people in our lives might start being like wait calm down but instead i'm like i already texted jesse about it and she said <laughs> yes so too late i drew the fan <laughs> like i drew the logo already <laughs> so we're not here to talk about your podcast we are here to talk about your guide on ethical fandom created in collaboration with Fandom Forward? In collaboration with a whole slew of creators. Um, it was headed up and like conceptualized by Fandom Forward and Black Nerds Create. And then they pulled together the rest of us and were like, hey, you do stuff like this a lot. Do you want to participate in this process? And we were like, yes, of course we do. Can you give us a quick FYI about 
like, who are these organizations and what do they do? So Fandom Forward uh, is a organization where the gist is that they harness sort of the energy and power of fandom and funnel it into social justice causes. So they have they'll have like resources about how fans can connect with other people via um, Our Flag Means Death or Avatar The Last Airbender or Harry Potter. In fact, they used to be um, the Harry Potter Alliance. And, you know, majority of their work was, you know, with Harry Potter fans with using Harry Potter examples. But they have broadened their scope and changed their name in accordance mm-hmm. to many of us sort of reevaluating HP in our lives. And then the other organization was Black Nerds Unite. Black Nerds Create. Formerly Black Girls Create. They're kind of a hub of Black nerds and creators getting together to put out more Black nerd content into the world and also a place where Black and not just, you know, Black nerds, but like all kinds of nerds can get together to talk about fandom in a way that is not... And a political way to talk about fandom, as it were. So yeah, so they have podcasts like, you know, their first podcast was like Hashtag Wizard Team. And now they're doing like The Nerds Are Talking. And what is the name of their other Doctor Who one? I don't remember. Tarbus. Tarbus. Sorry, does Tarbus stand for something Time different than Time and Tarbus? Relative Blackness in Space. That's incredible. Nice. And they just started a, a Tolkien one, too. I love it. That I think is called Tolkien Black Girls. Is that right? Oh, it's a, some kind of Tolkien pun. But they're they're rad. So they got together and then reached out to a bunch of people within the fandom community to create this guide. Yeah. And I'm assuming uh, Lark was doing a majority of the meeting with folks, but it was a lot of other fandoms. A lot of other content creators who were also talking about political things, like, within their specific fandom. I'm really interested in hearing more about how you went about creating the guide, but I think maybe first, I feel like this is work that the two of you have already done around your own podcasts in terms of creating resources for particularly the Harry Potter fandom to, like, navigate J.K. Rowling's public transphobia. So could you talk a little bit about the development of your own resources? Particularly, I'm thinking of your guide on firing J.K. Rowling. Like, what prompted the creation of that as a public resource? Yeah, I mean, it was whenever that was, December of 2019, when J.K. Rowling first was, like, tweeting her support for Maya Forstater. And, you know, everyone was kind of like, what what do we do with this information? And Jesse and I just, like sat down via text message and we're like, what do we do with this information? And put together the first version of it that now I'm like, oh my God, that's like so sloppy. But you know what? I put it together in like six hours and got it up. So, um, and it's just been refined, you know, every time she's done, well, yeah, every time she did something up to a certain point and I don't know, somewhere around I last august that we were in like, the timeline <laughs> yeah we were like we're on your d- website where you're just like and <laughs> yeah. we're done you can we're not tracking this you can anymore look it up yourself yeah and so with each iteration you know we would have had a bunch of conversations with people in like the comment sections of the places where it was posted and find the things where people were most confused or most concerned 
were most upset because at first we were calling it the guide to canceling JK Rowling because like canceling gets people really excited. And it was like, the point is for people to look at this and then like just the word cancel was derailing the point of everything. And we kept just being like, okay, stop, please. Anyway, so we switched it to be more specific about what we actually mean, which is firing and, you know, put together an FAQ for all the things like, but why can't I go to the theme park? And I think the final version is like really comprehensive and I'm very proud of it. People are deeply upset about not going to the theme park. (laughs) They sure are. (laughs) Not going to the theme park is the number one saddest fan thing I can't do (laughs) for me. (laughs) I wrote about it in my book. (laughs) I have like a footnote (laughs) about like coming to terms with it and like framing it in terms of like, Lauren Berlant's cruel optimism and the idea that, like, you have to recognize when sometimes the things that you want are actually counter to the thriving of yourself and your community. And, like, you have to wrap your head around that, that, like, you don't actually want this. You have just been taught that you want it. And it's, in fact, a way that your desires are being oriented in a way that turns you against what you need to actually be doing for yourself and your community. And, like, Wrapping your head around that, like, no, no, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's the one. That's the only one that I was like, fuck it. I'll just steal everything else from this from this person. But like, can't steal into that theme park. Now I'm reconsidering. They're very good at that. Like security is tight. (laughs) So I would say that's (laughs) probably (laughs) the I mean that's the mm-hmm. issue, right? Like if you could if you could just <laughs> clip open the the gate, you know, the like, you know those chain link fences, just like bring your bring your clippers, but they've got they've got metal detectors before you go through and yeah. It's a whole thing. How do you feel about that in terms of firing JK Rowling? If we if we just wire clip if we just cut the fence and slid. As long as you don't buy any like food or merch while you're there, that's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. If she didn't get a percent of the door sales, then it would not matter, you know, because logically she should only make money from things sold in that part of the park. But she is a really good deal. Yes. Which apparently her amount that she gets goes up to like in tandem with inflation. So she's got a better deal than like, For fuck's sake. you know, minimum God? wage in the United States. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm realizing that maybe if we have any listeners who don't follow the Gaily Prophet on Instagram, which seems unlikely, but it's possible, you know, no judgment. Can you two talk a little bit about what you mean by the form? So like, I know you were initially releasing Instagram posts to give people guidance. So am I right? That's how it started. And what's the final form of it now? Yeah. So I mean, like the current deck of like Instagram slides and um, also what we have available on our website, which I think is like hashtag ruthless.com slash resource guide. Um, and it's, I think it's kind of silly to actually be like final form as if I'm never going to edit it. But like <laughs> the one that we've used like the last three times people have been like, hey, can you post that thing? It's, I haven't had to make any changes is, is why I'm calling it final. That's fine. Like, if you make changes in the future, it's a new addition. It's no longer, like, <laughs> you've gone from draft. <laughs> it's just like the document history when you're working on something, and it's, like, final, and then it's final <laughs> underscore really. <laughs> final underscore really underscore June 2022. 
final is relative. Okay, so you've got some experience with guide creating via your guide on firing JK Rowling. So let's shift now to talking about this new guide, which is why you're here in the first place, about ethical fandom and building ethical fan spaces. So can we start off maybe by talking a little bit about who the guide is for? The guide says that it's for fan activists or anyone who is, you know, trying to channel the love of fandom for good. For I mean, for the the good, quote unquote, unquote, capital G. And I actually would just like to add to that that I think it is also uh, an excellent guide for anyone who is, for, for even for people who aren't necessarily going to be using um, fandom energy for social justice causes, but even just want to have a not terrible fandom space, you know, let it be like a Discord or, you know, you're trying to do tabletop RPG, like in-person group or like really any of those things because of sort of the broadness of the practices of the best practices that are listed that are laid out in the guide. Could you give us an example of like how the guide might be useful for somebody who, you know, wouldn't necessarily call themselves an activist, but maybe wants to start uh, a tabletop RPG and, you know, wants the people who are joining it to all feel good about joining it? Yeah, totally. One of the tenets is sort of intentionality. And one of like the very first kind of like tenets under that is um, to establish like community agreements. And really the importance of that is kind of the reason why everyone says don't read the comments, which is an unmoderated fandom space, whether online or in person, like the possibility of um, say people who have marginalized identities being shoved out or being made uncomfortable it can be really easy for that thing to happen unless you're intentionally saying that like hey we don't have any like you know you know language you know that's hurtful for other people we have like you know a guideline to specifically deal with that we are actually really clear about how we are sharing kind of the norms of like our fandom space and you know just even just thinking about like who like who are you building this community for so if you're like man i want to have a like you know tabletop rbg group at the library for like teens you know and it's like great and then but then you have to think about like so there's like the logistics of say how are you going to share these norms how are you going to communicate to folks that you know it's a welcome space and then also just even the like all right, so you're going to have certain hours for this. You're going to have, you know, there's going to be a certain kind of like activity level if you say at a library versus at your local comic book store. If you look at a comic book store, are they going to be sexist douchebags? Can I say douchebags in the show? You can. Yes. Are they going to yeah, are they you like sure can. the sexist douchebag comic book store owners? Or are they like the chill uh, a bunch of like cool rad people there and they're so excited about having a like diverse group of people play RPGs there? And just sort of being, just being like really seriously intentional about you have to create a opening welcome space and you can't just be like, well, we all love our flag means death. So we can all get together and talk about it and not have to have any kind of guidelines about, you know, anything. It's like, uh, 
people don't work like when you get a bunch of people from all over with different backgrounds and different experiences. <laughs> you, can't you can't just assume. assume. Yeah. So like what you're saying is that instead of assuming that all of the people who share like a love and an affection for the same thing will also share a kind of like politics of respect and egalitarianism, you like actually put into motion best practices and policies that that showcase that kind of everybody is welcome here attitude instead of just assuming that it'll be there and then when it's not there being like whoops or not even being like whoops just being like well not my problem because I think a lot of people create communities and then don't take responsibility for the dynamics that exist in those communities we've certainly seen a lot of like fallout from that kind of behavior. You know, this really reminds me of the work that you do at the beginning of a semester creating a classroom environment, right? Which is another kind of community where it's like, cool, okay, let's figure out like what the needs of this particular group are. Let's set some norms around how we're going to treat each other. Let's make sure that there's really clear guidelines about what behavior is okay and what behavior is not going to be okay. And let's try to do that, as you say here, under intentionality, let's try to do that thoughtfully. <laughs> like, let's actually, you know, not assume that there's a one-size-fits-all way of organizing, you know, here's how you organize a good community check, 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 done, that you've got to actually ask, like, okay, who are the people in this community? What are their needs? What are their, you know, are there access concerns? Are there, like, what are the realities of people's lives? These are all super vital questions to be asking, I think, no matter what kind of community you're trying to draw together. I think hand in hand with that is also being intentional and thoughtful about what accountability looks like. And accountability is actually one of the tenets because as I think people in the United States are struggling with, uh, sometimes calling out people's either potentially uh, ignorance of a thing or willful uh, malice of their actions and words. It's like, okay, so what, what do we do about that? And the sort of dominant culture answer is ignore it. It's or just kind of be like, oh, you don't want to be too rude. You got to be polite. It's like sweep it under the rug. And so it's really great because the guide also lays out, you know, ways of cultivating accountability. There's even just kind of like, like a step by step about how to apologize authentically, which I feel like any media creator should know how to do because we are only human and no one is perfect. Like, we're going to say things. Yes. No, this is definitely a thing that we have had to learn how to do. I think anybody who makes something public that you, you know, do your best to think about the impact of your work and then you put it out in the world and sometimes you have not thought about aspects of how it's going to impact people. And that is like the beauty and unpredictability of doing things in public. My friend Aaron taught me to reframe critique as a generous act that like when people critique something that you're doing they have taken the effort and time to like actually think about it and to share with you what has come out of their thinking and that you can receive that as a gift or you can like throw up a block in the way of it and really for me that reframing was so helpful to be like 
Critique is a gift. Yeah, that's like almost exactly. So we like, obviously all of this was created as a coalition, but then we each like took sections that we wrote the actual part that's going on the website and the apology section is one of the things that I wrote. And that's like almost exactly what I put as step four of the apology is like, they gave you a gift. Your apology needs to end with a thank you. Like, make sure that that's a part of what you're doing here because like time and energy are valuable resources and someone giving theirs to you is something that you should be grateful for. And I think it's easy to assume that like, people just call each other out on the internet because like they think it's super fun. And I think maybe sometimes that's true, but a lot of times people are calling you out because they respect you so much that they're surprised that you screwed up. And like, that's so nice of them, you know? Yeah. I really appreciate how in the accountability section, you begin with the creation of genuine relationships and then move to apologizing authentically because that has, for me at least, been so central to figuring out how to navigate being a public person and how to decide, you know, I have I get to decide who I'm accountable to. And then when I've decided that, then I know who, you know, who can hold me accountable and who can who I owe an apology to when I fuck up. So like that helps me distinguish between like if somebody sends us an email and is like, I'm mad because your podcast is too feminist, <laughs> I can be like cool fuck right off like because you're not i'm not accountable to you this is not you're not part of the community that i am identifying um so like that that making the deliberate community and the relationships come first i think really helps us understand that like accountability is about relationships not about just like creating an environment where like whoever whoever yells at you the loudest mm -hmm. wins. Yeah. I think too, like I think a lot about in the original run of which please, we had a segment and uh, we definitely explained what the point of it was in our first episode, but unsurprisingly it became uh, one of the most controversial parts of our podcast, uh, not because it itself was controversial, but because people who didn't listen to that first episode didn't know why we were doing it. And so uh, on the one hand, so I bring this up because on the one hand, just thinking in terms of like, when you are accountable to people and who you are accountable for, it's not necessarily a binary, like there's a category of people who we will be accountable to and one who we won't. Um, it's like, sometimes there will be a group of people who we do want to be accountable to. Um, but if they haven't done their own homework, we can't be expected to like reteach the lesson every time, right? But then at the same time, when we started the new run of the podcast, we decided to not reboot that particular segment. Uh, one, because we had done with it what we set out to do. And the other reason is because it very clearly did bother a lot of people. And so, you know, these things are complicated and we're constantly we're constantly needing to make these decisions about like what does accountability mean and what do we expect from our listeners and what do our listeners expect from us? And these things are they're like changing and we change with them. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Speaking of the complexity of accountability, the third sort of action within accountability here is about navigating your relationship with problematic faves, which we've already talked about in the context of J.K. Rowling and firing J.K. Rowling, but... In this section, the guide points out that, like, there isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all response to problematic faves. Can you talk a little bit more about that, like, adjusting your tactics, depending on the problematic fave in question? Yeah, totally. So when I was drafting this particular piece of things, I was like, okay, I'm just going to pick, like, from the fandoms that I am invested in, which is like, I'm not as multi-fandom as a lot of other folks are. And also just like the ones that we've had to talk about. So I was like, let's go with Joss Whedon as like least problematic in terms of public impact. And I think that that's like a really important, like I am not saying that he is less problematic um, in terms of the damage that he does, but in terms of how he affects people outside of his bubble, right? He's below J.K. Rowling on the on the scale. He's not, like, advocating against the human rights of a whole group of people. Exactly. And then, if you know, it's like, what's worse than J.K. Rowling? Oh, Disney. Like, Disney is actively participating in <laughs> politics in the United States that are harming the same people as J.K. Rowling um, and more. So... You know, it was like, okay, let's let's think about this. How do you how does how does ethically engaging change from one level to the next? And Jesse and I spent so much time talking about this. And I had already, right? Because also we make a Buffy podcast. And so when like everything about Joss Whedon came out, we were like, what are we what are we doing with this? You know, like a lot of folks were like, Yeah, like never watch Buffy again. And I think partly it's like a TV show is the creation of a lot more people than just the showrunner, A. But also, that doesn't really do anything, you know? With someone like Joss Whedon, what needs to happen is he needs to not be given positions of power, right? Because he abuses those positions of power. He's done with his position of power with Buffy. Like, that's over. But we can, as a fandom, say, hey, like, we, we don't want him to direct more movies actually we want you to stop hiring him so you can boycott future projects that he is the director of or you can make it very clear like be vocal about not wanting him to be involved but you don't have to like let go of the things that you love because they're in the past obviously with jk rowling you're like we already talked about that you're not buying her stuff. You're like boycotting everything that gives her money. You're engaging in piracy regarding <laughs> anything that she is <laughs> involved with. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. You're you're being you're being gay and doing crimes. Piracy Absolutely. and petty theft. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the other really important piece of like her level of problematicness is 
that smaller scale people, people with less name recognition who are doing the same kind of damage, you do need to just walk away from the fandom. Like you need to just be done because every time you talk about it, you are spread, like more people are hearing about the work. Like it's going, it's getting bigger as a result of your participation in the fandom. But like that doesn't make sense with Harry Potter because people who have never read or seen Harry Potter like know what house they associate with. You know, like if we all walk away from the fandom, then it's just people who agree with J.K. Rowling who are left in the fandom and it becomes like a terrible echo chamber of harm. And then obviously Disney, like you can't do any like Disney owns everything. Uh, yeah, Disney. Yeah, what's my your answer? answer is pay attention to what people <laughs> who work for Disney are saying. Like if they ask you to boycott something or ask you to, you know, participate in some sort of action, do it. Make it clear that you don't like what they're doing. If there is, you know, if someone's like, yes, please cancel your Disney Plus account, like do it. Tell people that you're doing it. But also, and I think this is true across the board is like we all need to be more intentional about praising good behavior and i think this is the one place where it's like oh yeah that's really important it's really important for all of them but i think that might be the most powerful tool we have with something like disney is like if someone's like this is a terrible work environment i quit like especially if it's an act of allyship and not someone who's actively being harmed be like you are great. Like, we are all very happy with the decision that you have made. Or if Disney changes their practices, be like, thank you so much. We're all so glad that you have made this decision. I want to ask a question about that because something that I think about is the way that a mega corporation like Disney does have the power to normalize things that smaller organizations don't, right? So, This is an example that is not based on anything I've seen because I haven't had a chance to see it yet. But I have heard that there is a same-sex kiss in the new Buzz Lightyear movie. And as a result, there are people who are boycotting and canceling screenings and that kind of thing. And so, I don't know, can you guys talk a little bit about like how we navigate the praising the behavior that we want to see, which is normalizing queer sexuality, for example, while at the same time not saying, as a result of this one movie, this one instance in this one movie, Disney is therefore all good. You know, how do we, how do we, how how do we, how do we do it? What do you, what do you think? What do you recommend? I feel like you can potentially just not talk about it as like a Disney decision, right? Because again, like visual media is something that's created by so many people. So being like, you know, this great thing that we're really happy about in this specific movie and like talk about the director, talk about the screenwriter, talk about, you know, the people who made that decision because it wasn't whoever is the head of Disney who's like deciding to fund the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill. Like that's not the person who signed off on this. And I, you know, obviously you're not going to like talk about that and therefore like stop talking about the bad things that Disney is doing. I think you can just do both. And again, like Disney owns like literally half of the fandoms out there. Like they own Marvel, they own Star Wars, they own everything. So like, and Disney-ness in and of itself is a fandom. It's a confusing fandom, but it is a fandom. And 
you you can't just be like, yeah, boycott Disney. Like, I mean, you can. It's just an unrealistic call. Right, exactly. And I think part of, of these conversations is that there needs to be a balance of, like, people want to love things. They want to engage with these things that they love. And so giving guidance on how to do that ethically and with nuance, I think, is always going to be more useful than being like, no, don't love it. You're bad. You're bad for loving it. Stop. Love nothing. <laughs> like a true politically pure person. Love nothing but critique and freedom. And then you are the mage from Carry On, and you're just sad all the time. <laughs> you did it. You're so you're so sad, but you're so pure. Okay, so let's talk about loving things because the third section of the guide is about imagination. And it's all about, like, the fun things we get to do in fandom. About, like, remixing and gender bending and race bending and and all of the sort of playful ways that we get to engage with our fandoms. So why is this part of the guide? This is where Jesse gets to talk because I am like, oh, yeah, you want to talk about canceling people and apologizing? That's me. And it's like, Jesse's like, yeah, you want to talk about fun parts of fandom? I will <laughs> talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, f- I feel that remixing is just one of the core foundational th- practices of fandom in general, where like you're not passively just consuming, like, say, a, a movie or a television show or a book. You're like, you know, you're thinking about it, you're engaging with it. I mean, a lot of what fandom is known for, let's be real, is, say, for example, slash fan fiction or like art where it's like, Man, I really wish Kirk and Spock would kiss. Clearly they're in love. Like this this is this is the birth of modern fandom. It's people being like, man, let me write stories and draw pictures and create a zine about Kirk and Spock being in love. Yeah. I wish these characters could kiss. Wait a minute. I can make them. <laughs> no kiss. one is stopping me from telling other people about this story I wrote about how they're I'm so powerful. <laughs> and the power in that, and say for example, you know. Uh, with race bending where you're like, oh, but what if Hermione was Black, actually, is creating space for yourself where maybe you're not seen reflected in the sort of gate-kept realm of major movies, television shows, like published books, like things where that have been traditionally been very white and heterosexual because they are controlled by, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> capitalism. and Which is controlled by white, white heterosexual dudes. I mean, not only does it bring people joy, but it also helps people discover things about themselves. In the podcast, The Gaily Prophet, we uh, have started since book one a headcanon that um, Hagrid is a trans woman. And we get so many emails, have gotten so many messages from people who are like engaging with this headcanon and you guys talking about it and, you know, and like discussing it has helped me realize that I am like trans and non-binary. Yeah, we recently got an email from someone that was like, I realized that I'm asexual from a like two minute long conversation that you had on Escape from Reality about reading Agatha as aromantic. And I realized that like, that's how I feel about sexuality. It's like, neat. This is the best. Great. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) It is the best. And I also just want to point out that obviously this is sort of like the transformative power of art, but sometimes you can just be like... I want to just imagine these characters in space instead. And that's just 
kind of the, you know, that's the fun part of fandom. And that's when I figured out that I was a space sexual. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the guy just lists out, it's kind of like, you know, if you see a piece of art and you're like, oh man, I really am inspired by this, this like, that this fan art that someone has created based on the canon of whatever media and you also want to like you're inspired by that and want to create something that like you should cite them oh yeah i caught that sarah ahmed (laughs) reference in there (laughs) feminist politics of citation here for it and then you know if possible when doing like you know say fan events or any other kind of things where there is potentially financial compensation to be financially compensating people uh, which is a good kind of lead into just sort of a part of the guy that came out of uh, a thing that me and Lark do with all hashtag ruthless productions, which is like financial transparency, like once every three or four months. Truly, it's whenever I have the energy. <laughs> whenever, whenever Lark feels like it, he will do a detailed post on Instagram about like, hey, we made this much money. Here's basically to the cent of where the, you know, the money that we get from patrons and merch, which is the 100% where we get our any money through our podcast is through listener support. Um, exactly where it goes. So much about uh, financial equity is on people not knowing how much money other people are getting compensated and, you know, how are, how are artists and writers supposed to know how to charge if they have no idea what everyone else is making. And, you know, commonly in the workplace, if you don't talk to your coworkers about how much they're making, you have no idea if the new person is making twice what you are making. I want to backtrack just a tiny bit because, Jesse, you were talking about, you know, the the power of fandom to make space for, for people who are otherwise very often not represented. And I want to talk a little bit about the point that the guide makes about guardianship versus gatekeeping. Do you want to talk a little bit about that distinction and why that distinction is important? <laughs> Sorry. I was just picturing you going, no. <laughs> we cannot talk about that. Absolutely not. Gatekeeping is an ongoing issue in so many fandoms, which is this sort of idea that fans need to somehow prove that they're a real fan or that they're like, quote unquote, fake fans. And it's like, like that kind of intentional, like blocking people from enjoying or accessing fandom is uh, messed up. Like, that's not what fandom should be about. But it's kind of like the discussion about why non-Indigenous witches shouldn't use white sage in their witchcraft. Yeah, that's not gatekeeping. That's, That's guarding a cultural practice that white people have appropriated and, like, with really terrible consequences. Right. There are plenty of alternatives to white sage or even the term smudging, which is like also a specific like indigenous practice and not just, you know, something that every non-indigenous witch should be doing. Yeah. And so like the importance of both like preserving the culture of using white sage and also kind of not the, the plant itself as a finite resource is important and that's like much different than gatekeeping which would be like don't use crystals that you got from five below like that's not real witchcraft and it's like who 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 is making these you like just for some random person 
Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, like on the one hand, you're talking about the integrity of a cultural practice. And then on the other hand, you're talking about like making people feel bad for not being able to afford like expensive crystals. And these are very, very different ways of maintaining a community. One is like an act of building and nurturing a community. And then the other one is an act of like keeping people out of a community. Yeah, this actually makes me think on the topic of the fourth key area in the guide, which is community care. You're making me think about conversations that are happening in the open access realm in scholarly communication about how the sort of prioritizing open access can become itself this like hardline value that people will be like, everything has to be open access, open access or bust. And then it will be like, well, but not everything is actually necessarily for everyone. Like if you're doing a digital project where you're digitizing like indigenous stories that have their own particular protocols of like when those stories can be read or who's allowed to have access to them, you don't necessarily want like open access isn't necessarily the right approach to those stories like they might actually need to have restricted access for particular communities so let's talk a little bit more about community care what are the sort of you know core tenets of community care and why is this an important part of the sort of larger conversation about ethical fandom communities so this first practice is on prioritizing accessibility which i feel like is a conversation that disabled fans have amongst themselves, but I think in general fandom could be better about. One of the points under this is just to kind of like building in accessibility from the beginning of your project, work, whatever. And as an example, uh, at Hashtag Ruthless, we always make sure to have alt text for every image that we have on Instagram. And I try very hard for that that we do on Twitter also, because there are fans out there who use a screen reader for a variety of reasons. It doesn't actually, it doesn't matter what, but they do. And it's important for those fans to have access to our work and the information that we're putting out there. And especially on something like Twitter, like alt text on an image is, they make it very easy. And I still see it so infrequently it's deeply frustrating and then there's things like you know what is the layout and the color scheme of your website you know um for podcasts a huge thing is having transcripts for folks who want to know what's happening in the podcast and would rather be able to like have it as a transcript and that kind of work is important in having fandom truly be another space that is welcoming of everyone yeah accessibility itself i think is also a conversation that we tend to have as a kind of, as a binary, right? Of like, either you're accessible or you're not accessible. And recognizing that accessibility is something that you can always do more of, that there's always ways to improve it, and that that recognizing that you could always do more of it is not a reason to not start with the things that you can do. So being like, cool, we're a indie podcast and... We, you know, can't get corrected transcripts out yet, but we'll start with automated transcripts because we can do those and then we'll start correcting them as soon as we have the capacity where, you know, 
like things like image descriptions on Instagram and alt text on Twitter is like really low hanging fruit. So like recognizing that there's things that you can start with that aren't, you know, you don't have to be perfect or nothing. I have another question for you too. And I'm going to confess that it's a leading question. I'm not actually ignorant of the difference between these two things, but I want you to talk about it because I think it's important. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the choice to refer to the guide as a best practices guide and not as, say, a rule book. Like, I think we've been really getting at this idea a lot throughout the course of our conversation, but I'd love, I'd love for you to, to, you know, talk through why the language of best practices is maybe more useful than, say, here are the rules for accessible fandom. How to be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a point where uh, I was talking with one of the lead folks at Fandom Forward about, like, should we put, like, a TLDR at the bottom of every article? And we're like, and every single one would just be, don't be a dick. Like, I think that's... <laughs> The whole thing. Um, But I think it really, I mean, yeah, it's just like the whole point is to create a fandom that's like opening and open and inviting and welcoming and like help people feel empowered to do that more and better and using wording to describe what this is that feels inviting and feels expansive and like something where you can like you know, start somewhere and work your way up as you have the time and resources to be able to, I think, just makes sense. What's your long-term hope for this project? What do you want out of it? Uh, I would just like a, in general, uh, a, ki- a kinder, kinder fandoms where people are kinder to each other. I've been in fandom since I since the late 90s and I've seen so many collapse under just people being very cruel and mean to each other and I'm just like it doesn't have to be like this I feel like we could keep talking about this guide for probably another hour easily but you know one of these final practices is uh self and community care and um I think we all want to stop sitting or want to sit harder, depending on where we're sort of at personally. So sit more horizontal. <laughs> sit more horizontal. Yeah. What are you doing sitting down? You should be horizontal now, as one of my bops of the summer says. Um, that's Shays Long by Wet Lake. Everybody go listen to it. Coach, could uh, you just could rules. you just drop a drop a sample? Could you drop just it? Drop in? a sample. Could you just drop it. Coach, could you right just there. put it could you put it right here? Here? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Hey you. So if people want to go and read this guide for themselves, where do they find it? Yeah, it is at fandomforward.org slash for fan organizers. Amazing. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well, obviously. Obviously. And if people want more of you, where do they go? If they were like... You're so charming. You're so smart and funny. How do we get more? Which of you? obviously is how they're all feeling right now. Yeah. So we're at hashtag ruthless.com and we are on Instagram and Twitter at the Gaily Prophet. And 
We're on all of the podcast apps. I think if you search hashtag ruthless, you should find all of our podcasts. But, you know. That's hashtag spelled out as the word. Sure not is. as the Not as the, funnier that the way. Sign. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that's my kind of, that's my kind of joke. I love a typographical <laughs> joke. <laughs> all right. Well, everybody share this beautiful guide. And, uh, and hopefully we can all collectively just make the spaces that we're in a little kinder. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes on our beautiful coach-designed website, ohwitchplease.ca. Special thanks, as always, to that team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you want to hang out with us some more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Oh, witch, please, with a ton of hot new content. Thanks to our witch, please apprentice, Zoe Mix. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Zoe. (laughs) And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We are continuing to work via your support on the transcription of the podcast. Seasons five and six are now fully transcribed with the rest in progress. If you're not already a Patreon supporter, this is a really great time to jump on the bandwagon. We've got all kinds of new content. The newest perks are uh, blooper reels for every episode, (laughs) a comic based on those blooper Mm -hmm. reels. And also, Marcel will name your pets for you. You bet I will. So what can't you get through our Patreon? And appliances. Marcel will also name your appliances for you. (laughs) So you should probably head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease to find out more about the various tiers. If you're not able to contribute financially, but you still want to lend us a hand, we would absolutely love it if you dropped us a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Yeah, because when I leave for the night, I'm not coming back. Thanks this week to Jasper underscore not underscore the underscore park. Your commitment to reading all of the underscores is one of my many favorite things about this part of the podcast. Aw, thank you. Speaking of which, hearts underscore built to spill underscore for life. Aviv Pash, E.M. Cools, Tommy, and M. 2019. But it's probably M.H. 2019 with three exclamation marks. (laughs) 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 the next episode dropping into your feed will be some more special bonus content followed by the first episode on harry potter and the deathly hallows dropping on august 23rd but until then later Later, witches. witches